you open up to James chapter 5, we're going to be in our series in James tackling one verse today, so we're going really fast. But it's one big topic that we're talking about, so we're going to just dive right in. And Firstly, I invite you to stand in honor of reading the Lord's Word today. We're going to be looking at what James says in his book, and then we're going to look at likely what he echoed, and that is Jesus' words on the same topic in the Sermon on the Mount. So, James 5, verse 12 says, Now above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath, your yes must be yes, and your no must be no, so that you won't fall under judgment. Now listen to what Jesus says. He says, again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oath to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it is God's throne, or by the earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Neither should you swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black, but let your word yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. Let's pray. Father, I come before you with nothing to offer, but my desire that your spirit be at work here. Father, these are, biblically speaking, tough things to understand. Whenever it seems passages might contradict each other, but we trust your word to be inerrant and a guide for all of life. Father, this is your word. Let us not take it lightly, but use us, use it to transform us so that you might use us for your glory and for the good of all people. Say what it is that you desire. Have your way in our hearts and may we have receptive, soft hearts to your word. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Throughout many sermons this past year, really beginning with January, when we did a series on the Word of God, we touched on from time to time the importance and the power of words. And without going too much into the scripture background for that, as I've touched on it several times, I just remind you of Hebrews 1 where it says that God upholds the universe by the word of his power. Or in Isaiah, which talks about God's word not returning to him void. But I want to press on to you practically how our culture may have devalued what words might mean to us. I'll give you an example I'm the president of the local ministerial association, the UCMA, and one of those things that slightly annoys my introvert sensibilities, <laughs> because I'm a millennial and I grew up breathing technology, is that one of the ministers doesn't have a computer, and he doesn't ever use email, or knows what it is, I think he knows what it is, but he doesn't care to utilize it. And so, he only gets told when our next meeting is at the previous meeting when we're planning it. He writes it down in his book. But then I feel obligated, being the president and all, to call him a few days before the meeting. Usually, at the exact same time, I just sent an email to all the other pastors who are living in this century. 
And I'm not a big phone person. Many of you might know that. And so half the time, because I'm irresponsible, I forget to call that minister. You know what happens? He shows up anyways. Because, unlike many of us, who need reminders in our smartphone calendars and through emails and so forth for this minister, he received the information once, he wrote it down once, he said he'd be there, so he's there. That shows, for me, for him, that words really hold weight. Words certainly hold weight for me, but it always surprises me that meanwhile there are pastors who all email, and then I see them in person and remind them, and then I chat with them on Facebook, and then they don't show up. But this guy who's committed is told once and shows up always. Words mean something to him. Because what we're looking at here in James 5.12 is one verse talking about one topic, I thought it was helpful for the sake of arrangement and sermon flow to cover this topic in five segments, all beginning with P. I'm going to stretch the P word on one of the segments because I have a minor case of OCD. I had to make it work. What I see here in James's progression in the verse is that James first talks about the preeminence of his command, and then he makes the proclamation of his command, and then here's the stretch. He gives preposition to this command, and that is the boundaries and how this command is to be observed. Fourthly, he brings out the principle that this command is to reveal in believers. And then finally, he's going to talk about what he is preventing us from. So, preeminence, proclamation, preposition, principle, and prevention. And some of you are like, I don't even know those words. You'll, you'll understand them throughout the sermon. Don't worry. To be honest, I really wasn't looking forward to this sermon because in the back of my mind, it felt like small potatoes. <laughs> Hopefully you know me, and my desire is not to get up and talk nonchalantly to you about a minor topic, but I feel the Bible and the pulpit and the exhortation of word is not where we brush up slightly on a topic. It's where the Word of God transforms souls. And so for me to get up and say, hey, be careful about oaths, <laughs> felt kind of anticlimactic for me. Lo and behold, James is with me, which is why he doesn't see it as small potatoes, and the Holy Spirit does not see this as small potatoes. Speaking of weighty words, look at the importance and the preeminence that James gives this topic as he writes, now above all, my brothers. A more literal translation might read, before all things. As in this is preeminent, this is of greatest importance, considering everything that I'm talking about here. What just saying something. Now, there are debates out in commentator land, which might come as a big surprise to you. But the question is, is James really saying that this statement right here is of more importance than everything he's talking about? Than faithful and fruitful endurance under trials? Than faith showing itself in works? Than letting God make your plans? Or what does, what does James mean here? I think James is highlighting this topic. He's directing attention to this issue. Maybe because he knows people like me exist. And we might emphasize other things he's talking about in this part of his letter such as trials, 
plan for this illustration. <laughs> no, such as trials. Or maybe praying. And so when it comes to this verse, which in context really sticks out like a separate topic, a sore thumb, like this verse is just planted between two other big things, I feel like James is saying, I'm reminding you of something that our Lord Jesus said, and it has everything to do with everything I'm telling you. It has weight, it has momentum, it has very personal and powerful significance for your life. Our words mean something. They have weight. In fact, Jesus says this. Listen to the preeminence he gives to words here in Matthew 12, 36-37. I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. I feel like we live in a time in history where if people want words to have weight, what do they often say? Can I get it in writing? In biblical times and still in court systems today, or it seems like when newscasters are listening to politicians, whatever is verbally said carries the same weight as we think of when we say, can I get it in writing? According to God Almighty, what you say, whether you know it's being recorded or whether you want to be heard authoritatively, or you're flippantly saying something and passing to your friend behind somebody else's back, in other words, gossiping, Jesus says you and I will have to account for every careless word we speak. I was in a situation once between two friends of mine, we're going to call them Tom and Hank, and Tom's telling me, Hank's going behind my back, he's telling all of his friends such and such about me, he's, he's made me lose my job. And those are some hefty accusations being made. But before the argument's done, what do I hear Tom saying? Oh, by the way, Tom says, the higher-ups have come down on Hank with this complaint. I know it. The other bosses know it. They're going to they're gonna fire Hank as well. I did a little research myself and basically found that Tom's information was false. Every careless word. If we believe Jesus at his word, which I believe we do, and I've been in there called Tom out for his hypocrisy and Tom backpedal, but Tom's going to have to answer for that. In a moment of anger and animosity and feeling victimized, Tom lashed out with careless gossip. And I don't bring that up to make fun of any guy named Tom, but I'm asking myself, what have I said likewise? What have you said likewise? I hear it all the time, out of my mouth and others, oh, well, so-and-so is welcome to say that, do that, think that, because we all know so-and-so is guilty of this. <laughs> and perhaps James puts this one verse around verses dealing with trials, because we know that in trials we have a tendency to start being flippant with our words and our tongue, and the way we use words is preeminent. Before all things, James wants to command something here. What is it? He's given the preeminence of his command, and so what's the proclamation? He says, do not swear. In context, I've always known rather quickly that the kind of swearing that James is talking about, but every study source I looked at had to remind me, so maybe I thought, well, maybe I should point this out. He's not talking about four-letter words, <laughs> cussing or vulgarity here. He's not, James is not talking about that sort of swearing. He's not 
this is a, a topic talked about in the Bible elsewhere, unwholesome talk. But James is talking more about oath-taking. He's talking about, I swear on my mother's grave that I'll blank. I'll return the money back, I swear it. James is not making a new commandment here. In many ways, <clears throat> this goes back to the third of the Ten Commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The word vain is basically emptiness, because the law knows, and God knows, and the Spirit knows, for the person who says, Oh, I swear to God, is not actually calling God Almighty into their presence, nor do they really intend to. <clears throat> it's kind of funny to me. Can you imagine? I swear to God, and then God Almighty, maker of the heavens and the earth, shows up in all of his glory and holiness. And as God said to Moses, nobody can see me and live. If he were to show up every time somebody flippantly called upon his name to swear. If people could then speak, somehow explaining, well, I, I, I really didn't mean it, God. <laughs> Seems kind of a bit of an understatement. Do not swear. Do not emptily, vainly, self-centeredly call God to witness your self-thought awesome honesty. Leviticus 19.12 You must not swear falsely by my name, profaning the name of your God. I am Yahweh. God is omnipresent. He's been witness to all of our deeds anyways. Who do we think we are calling him to bear witness to something he's already witnessing? And then if we have the audacity to make a vow and make an agreement, call him to bear witness, we better be willing to follow through on what we're doing. We're in a real relationship with a real, altogether righteous, pure, and powerful God. He's not just some co-signer on a bank loan. We take God down a level. We put him a level lower than we are. I'm going to follow through on this so much that I'll even call God to witness just how right and how certain I will perform what I'm vowing here, what I'm saying here. So what do people do to get out of this? What do people say? Well, fine, I won't swear to God. Well, then they make substitutes, which is just transcendent, superb logic. You really can't beat it. It's just marvelous. Humans really haven't been that smart since Adam and Eve were hiding in the garden from God behind a rock. Note what I call the preposition of this command. That is the boundaries in which this commandment is to be observed. James says that we are not to swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. Now, I thought of two different ways we can take this passage. Maybe you can think of more, but for my purposes, I'm just going to present these two general ways. The first way you can take it is to take it as a list. That James and, and Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount are just adding on to the list of things we cannot swear by. So now we're going to have to resort to swearing by our left pinky before it's all said and done. Unless if the left pinky is on a list somewhere in the Bible. The second way to take this passage, I believe, the correct way, is that James is not just giving us a list. He's doing what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. He's getting 
to the heart of the matter, which will become very evident when James enters into our fourth segment called the principle of the command. But let's note that James is echoing Jesus here. We've heard Jesus' command from the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning of the message, but I want to go to another part in the book of Matthew where I think Jesus fleshes out what he means when he says not to swear by these other things. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is really just ripping into the religious types. It's the chapter of woes to the Pharisees and the hypocrites. And in Matthew 23, Jesus says, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And if you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. I think the first thing that Jesus is getting to here, that it's rather idiotic to assume that swearing on something that belongs to God or that God owns without saying the name of God is somehow swearing on something less than God. And ultimately, what the problem is with swearing is really not what or who you're swearing on, but it's on the very act of swearing itself. And in fact, from what heart is that swearing coming from? What is the heart that perhaps might not be able to swear on God, but finds it within themselves to swear on Jerusalem, to swear on their mother's grave, or to swear, period? Does that come from a heart that's pure? If you want to swear, why not just swear to God? Well, if I swear on my mother's grave, and especially if she's not dead, then I have a loophole. Well, if I swear on something other than God, I'm not calling God to bear witness, and so if I fail, I won't be judged. God did not witness that contract, that deed, what I was swearing on. Great reasons, again. The logic is infallible. As we come to this part of James's verse, and we come to this fact that James is echoing what Jesus says, and that is the heaven, the earth, under the earth, doesn't matter. It's all God's. In this way, in this factor of what we're talking about here, again, it's not a matter of what you're swearing on. It's a matter of why are you swearing to begin with? Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, and James in his book, I don't believe, are merely regulating oaths. They're not trying to release oath-taking and swearing as regulated by God, 101, first pending Jerusalem, 30 AD, whatever. What Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount, and I believe what James is echoing, is what Jesus did throughout the, all of the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it been said. And then Jesus lays out what I call a product or a fruit, whether it be don't commit adultery, physical act, product, everyone sees it, don't murder, physical act, product, fruit. Jesus lays that out, and he says, in essence, I take it further. Don't even have the fruit. 
or the tree, the producer. Don't have the tree to begin with. Don't have the lust in your heart. Don't have the hate in your heart. Do you hear the difference in that? And so Jesus is not after our products. He's after our producer. More than what our actions are, God's concerned about what's causing our actions. One concern, namely the concern of products and actions, the fruits, and then taking them and modifying them to look better, does not fix the ultimate problem. Again, example from the Sermon on the Mount, if there is an adulterer in our congregation, excuse me, that was supposed to pop up, but if there's an adulterer in our congregation, for me to go up to them and say, hey, stop sleeping around, and then be done with it, I didn't fix the problem. Jesus says that's not enough. Jesus says stop lusting. That's the difference there. Sleeping around is an activity. What's in the heart is what Jesus is after. That's why when it comes to habitual sins, lusting, anger, greed, the mouth, it's not enough to modify behaviors, but something, namely someone, has to occupy that area where lust is birthed from, where anger comes from, where the greed comes from, where the mouth speaks. And if Jesus is continuing this differentiation between fruits versus the tree that does it, products versus the producer, when it comes to our topic here, and I believe he is continuing with that illustration, when he comes to oaths, what is Jesus getting at? Again, he says, you've heard it been said, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven because it is God's throne, or by the earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Neither should you swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black. That should be some of our life verse right there. <laughs> but let your word yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. What is Jesus getting at? What is the producer what is the tree, what is the source of sin that Jesus wants and that James echoes that he wants eradicated? What is that stream flowing from the evil one, as Jesus says? And if we believe that Jesus is again doing more than just adding on to the law, making a bigger list, but rather he is illuminating the law. When God said don't commit adultery, he was talking about not committing adultery in the heart. When God said don't murder. He was talking about not murdering even in the heart. So when God says not to use God's name in vain, not to swear, not to break oaths, what does that look like in the heart? Do you follow my logic there? I believe as James moves into what I've labeled as the principle of the command, he's, he's giving us in James 5.12. We will see that. But first, another passage in Matthew, I think, really begins to show us what God is after, what what the principle is, and it's actually right before a passage we've already looked at. We looked at in Matthew 12, 36-37, we're supposed to give an account for all the careless words we give, but hear that now in context. Jesus says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? When the mouth for the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. A good man produces good things from his storerooms of good, and an evil man produces evil things from his storeroom of evil. For I tell you that on the day of judgment, people 
will have to account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. We understand the simple fact that if I go to my backyard where there is a bad apple tree, and, and I just pick one off, and I try to inject it with some serum to make it taste better, that doesn't fix the apple tree. <laughs> because the problem is not really with each individual apple, it's the whole tree. The producer is bad, the tree is bad, and as Jesus says, the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. And if you even have to swear, you're in essence saying, I'm not usually honest, but since I'm swearing now, you know you can trust me at this time. And God is saying, i got a better idea. Just always be honest. That's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what James echoes here in our verse today. Your yes must be yes. And your no must be no. James has moved from a negative, don't do this, namely swear on heaven, earth, anything else, to a positive, but do this. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. See, this is where the Spirit reaches down into the heart, the tree and the producer, and says, I want that changed. I just don't want regulations, behavior modifications, band-aids, cover-ups, and patch-ons. I want the source changed. I want the essence of who you are changed. I want the tree that produces bad fruit, unkept vows, and unaccomplished promises. I want that to not happen. I want that to be pure, righteous, holy, unquestionably trustworthy, consistent, dependable, and honest. You hear that? So how does that happen? How does the unkept vows and unaccomplished promises become kept vows and accomplished promises? Here's how some in church history and the faith tradition here included has tried to succeed. Simply put, well, don't take oaths. Because, as Vince read for us earlier today, better that you do not vow that you vow and not fulfill it. Which, okay, Maybe I'm not realistic enough, but doesn't that seem a little bit pessimistic? Just don't do it all together. Which implies to me, we'll never be able to have kept vows, accomplished promises. We'll, we'll, we'll be safe if we don't make vows or promises, and if by some miracle we show commitment to the end on something without ever having vowed to begin with, the glory be to God, but just to stay safe, let's never vow, let's never take an oath, let's never make promises. If we let our yes be yes and our no be no always, and if we're never to take oaths because we'll always be honest anyways, let me say that one more time, because I didn't say that pretty fast like the rest of my sermon. If we let our yes be yes and our no be no always, and if we're never to take oaths because we'll always be honest anyways, then it's not about oaths or taking oaths. It's about this simple fact. You and I are living every day under oath before God. You and I are living every day under oath before God. It's not about the products. It's not about the fruits. It's about the producer and the tree. And the producer, the tree, has been changed by God, by his power, in his death and his resurrection, in his spirit that rose him from the grave, now lives in us so that we might have a new heart, a new producer, a new tree, then what God is calling us, calling us to hear, namely to always be so honest and so full of integrity that we don't have an under oath honesty, 
and in a not under oath, less than honesty, the fact that we will be judged for every word we say means that we're always living under oath. Does that make sense? And so it becomes a bigger issue than just, do I put my hand on a Bible and swear, or do I just affirm to tell the truth? It's not an action thing. It's not a motion thing. It's not a ceremonial partake or do I not partake thing. It's a heart thing. It's an identity thing. It's a who I am all the time thing. It's bearing witness in my everyday life as a Christian thing. You hear the difference. So is it directly about this act, the ceremony of taking oaths, or is it about my heart? I want to show you in the Bible where oaths themselves seem to be still okay. Perhaps you've even heard it in Vince's reading of Ecclesiastes. We heard that making a vow before God was still an option, but we were to be really deliberate about it. And that's kind of the tone of the whole Bible. Being deliberate about our oaths and not hasty. Listen to what the law says, Numbers 30, verse 2. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to put himself under an obligation, he must not break his word. He must do whatever he has promised. So we hear in the law that it's not about the oath itself, it's about the heart that makes it. And if the heart that makes it says, I'll do it, then do it. That's what Jesus and James, I believe, are getting at by living life under the oath of God. Do everything you say you'll do. Deuteronomy 23, verses 21 through 23. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, not, don't make a vow. He doesn't say if you make a vow, it'll be a sin. But rather, do not be slow to keep it, because he will require it of you, and it will be counted against you as a sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, it will not be counted against you as a sin. Be careful to do whatever comes from your lips, because you have freely vowed what you promised to the Lord your God. Or in the New Testament, we read in Hebrews chapter 3 or 4, the author recites Psalm 95, 11 several times, where God says, So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. In Hebrews 6, 13, the author reminds his readers that God swore by himself to Abraham. God says to Abraham, By myself I have sworn... This is the Lord's declaration, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you. God swears. And in fact, the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 6, would go on to demonstrate that people swear. And the author remains interestingly silent onto the ethics of people swearing. Hebrews 6.16 says, For men swear by something greater than themselves. We've just heard that from James and Jesus. Heaven, earth, Things greater than themselves. The author then goes on to say, and for them, a confirming oath ends every dispute. Right? Calling God to witness. It'll happen. I swear to God. The discussion ends here. I'm cursed if I don't follow through. This is why God swore. Then the author of Hebrews declares, because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. So we have here in Hebrews, the author stating Yep, people swear God swears, here's why, and he doesn't say they shouldn't swear. Or he doesn't say only God should swear. In fact, Paul seems to be calling God as witness to many of his statements in his letters. Let me just give you a rundown of a few verses here. Don't worry, I will reconcile all this. Paul called God as witness in these statements. He says, For God is my witness, whom I serve in my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, or but I call God to witness against me. 
It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Apparently Paul is that bad of a preacher. <laughs> and another part in 2 Corinthians. And why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. Galatians 1.20. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Philippians 1.8. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 2.5. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed, God is witness. 1 Thessalonians 2.10, You are witnesses, and God also, of how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. So what is Paul doing? Is he ignoring the words of Jesus and James? He seems to be calling God to witness to a lot of things. To spare the Corinthians having to deal with Paul, for God to attest the fact that Paul really loves them, or witness the letter of Paul's writing to Galatians, and so forth. Are these... Flippant, empty-hearted, God attest to my honesty here statements? Or could it be that Jesus and James are after something else entirely than how Paul uses God to witness to him? I believe it is. And we will see it lastly in our verse today. As a regroup, James opened his statement with the preeminence he gives it. This is an above all things, and we see it is. It's living under oath before God every day. It's very personal. Very preeminent. He then proclaimed his command, do not swear. He's building off the entire counsel of God when he gives that command. He's echoing Jesus when he gives it. He gives it preposition, defines the boundaries. He starts entering into the heart of the matter, and he's saying it's not about what you swear on, but it's about why you are swearing. And then that's the principle of the argument. We're always living under oath before God. We're always supposed to be honest. We're always living before the face of God. And now James comes to our final P, the prevention. What is James? What is God trying to prevent? I've said this many times. God's rules are not to rob us from joy, but they are to spare us from harm. So what is God preventing here? James finishes. This is why you should do what I'm saying here. So that you won't fall under judgment. And I believe that answers, first of all, our question. Is the Bible contradictory about oaths? Do, do some verses make room for oaths and other verses imply that Christians like Paul or even Jesus, who says so often, truly, truly, I say to you, he reasserts his honesty. And the answer from this passage from James 5.12 is, well, will Jesus or Paul fall under judgment for their statements? For their calling God as witness? For their reasserting their honesty? No, they won't, because they were honest. They were right. They're not going to fall under judgment if they call God to witness something he's already witnessing. God was Paul's witness for all his statements. Paul was aware of that, and he wasn't saying it loosely or flippantly. God truly could attest to Paul's honesty in his statements. Does that make sense? What God is preventing, what James says he's trying to prevent here, is judgment. Do you hear that? Could it be that with the Spirit of God in you and me, that like Paul, maybe at times we can have enough discernment on what things we should swear on and what things we shouldn't. I made vows willingly when I professed my love and lifelong commitment to Christy. I'm going to be judged if, heaven forbid, that ever is not followed through on. I made an oath, a vow, a covenant with God when I invited him into my heart. 
And whenever I was baptized, I professed with not only that ceremony, but with my words and actions every day, that's the point of this passage, that I am a Christian. I believe if you said to God, come into my heart, and if you said to him, I believe in you and I profess to be a believer, that you did not do that lightly. It may have been an inside vow, it may have been an unvocalized oath, but I believe believe it nevertheless was. And don't let that make you fret, because I believe, and the Bible preaches, that that is not to be a weight on you. Because what the beauty is about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and what the beauty is about the Gospel, is that we have the Spirit of God in us, and that same Spirit in which the author of Hebrews tells us that God is a, has an unchangeable purpose. I love what Peter says, dear Christian, whenever you are saved, this is the perfect Welcome to the family scripture. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5 says, Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And listen to this. Don't fret that you're living under oath. Don't think you can't keep it because you are being protected by God's power. That's not your broken, sin-influenced, fallen power. That's God's pure power. And you are being protected, guarded, kept. How so? Through your own efforts? No. Through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So to not fall under judgment is to not a matter of keeping oaths. It's not a matter of, it is a matter of who your Lord is what your faith is in. And James and Jesus here is not merely calling us to refrain from oath-taking, but to engage in a life under the oath of God. To engage in a life in reflecting His nature, to stop saying, I live two lives. One life where I'm really honest because I'm under oath, and another life where I'm a little bit more dishonest because I've not made an oath. If you are a Christian, you've made an oath. And by God's grace, by His Spirit, by His power, you should be able to say when necessary, under God I commit to this because you always do. Does that make sense? Let's pray. Father, I've asked for your Spirit's wisdom to deliver this message. And I pray that your wisdom is what made it into the ears and hearts of the listeners. I don't profess to have written your word. I'm grateful I haven't. I'm grateful you've given it to us today. Father, would this truth settle in our hearts that you don't call us to be people who have times when we're honest, times when we're dishonest, But Father, as we are supposed to reflect our Maker and Creator who has an unchangeable purpose, who is always consistent, as James says, that there's no shadow of change, would you give us that character as well, that people can know that we'll do what we say? And Father, for the times we fail, would you forgive us? And would you help us to know that your Spirit gives us the power to be this way? But it's only through your power and it's only through your spirit our efforts will never fix the problem. 
nor should we try to use our efforts, but we should rely more on you each and every day. Father, and with that light, speak to those around us, that they would know, wow, I can always depend on that person, and they would know, I wonder if it's because they're reflecting Jesus. Father, we love you and we thank you, and we ask and we pray each and every one of these things in the name and work and power of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.